I'll invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. Getting through a good portion of Scripture today, although some of it is descriptive, and so perhaps uh, not as uh, needful to walk through it um, as slowly. The inheritance of the overcomers. We have finally made it to the the point as a believer of reading the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. We've studied, we've analyzed, we've compared, we've contrasted, we've considered, we have exhorted one another to faithfulness, to urgency, to patience, and to hope. And all of these things find their final object, the hope that we have in Christ, uh, the, the reason to endure, uh, the reason why we can say that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be, be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. All of the, the promises, the great and precious promises of the salvation that is yet to come, it, it finds its realization in that which we read about Today, Today's chapter is the hope of God's people. Today's chapter is the essence of our motivation. Today's chapter is the very seat of our expectation. Today's chapter is the fundamental source of why we do what we do, of the thing that we have believed on, of the thing that we have said, I count this promise of greater riches than the things of this earth. It is the, the essence of, as we're about to, to step into Hebrews 11 on Tuesday nights, the, the hope that all of those who have gone before us, those, that great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 11, the hope that they had in God, we're reading about the substance of that hope, the essence of that hope this morning. It is what all we who long for the Lord's appearing are waiting for. And so we begin in chapter 21 of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, verse 1, and John writes this, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Well, we begin with John saying that he sees what he calls the new heaven and a new earth. And he states specifically that the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And then he says even more specifically, and there was no more sea. Now there is a question about the elements of this statement and uh, what elements are literal and what elements are metaphorical. We understand that there does seem to be a time where God will reform, He will reshape, He will make a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, we understand this from Second Peter chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, where Peter writes this, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We'll talk more about that next week. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, Peter writes, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So we find that Peter connects the events surrounding the day of the Lord, which we've connected to uh, the elements of the 70th week of Daniel into the millennium. And then after the millennium, all of those speak toward this time period. And he says that within the scope of this time period, the heavens uh, will pass away. The earth will melt with a fervent heat. The elements of the earth will melt with a fervent heat. And notice he does say there, not just that the elements, but he says the earth with all the works that are therein will be burned up. And this perhaps give us a, gives us a little hint to what 
John might be writing in, the, in Revelation 21. We see that as Peter speaks of this reforming of the earth, that the, the elements will be melt with the fervent heat, that the heaven will pass away, we see as well that he says the works thereof will pass away. So we see one element of it that is physical, the, the actual elements of the earth, and then we see another part of it that is ideological, the works, the spiritual, the, the, the emotional, the, the negative aspect, the evil that is done in the earth will pass away as well. That, that there will be a cleansing of the earth and that with that cleansing there will not just be a, a renewal of the physical topography of the earth, but there will be a doing away with, with all of the remembrance of sin. If you think about it, the earth that we live in right now for all of its beauty is a stunning testimony of God's judgment. You look at the Grand Canyon, and we who are uh, young earth creationists would say, no, the Grand Canyon is not millions of years of, uh, of, of a, little bit with a little bit of water. It's not, not a lot of time and a little water to carve out the Grand Canyon. It's, it's a little bit of time and a whole lot of water, right? It is a testimony to the reality of the deluge that happened when God judged the earth for the sin of mankind the first time. And so as we look at the mountains and the grandeur of the mountains, I grew up in Colorado, and one of the fun things about Colorado is you never have to wonder which way is west, right? I never had to look at a compass. Am I going west? Well, where are the mountains, right? Because the plains are very flat and then the mountains are very tall. And so you just look toward the mountains and you can see them from from. The vast majority of Colorado, you can just see those mountains jutting up when you live on the plains. Those mountains jutted up during the deluge, if we take the word of God at its word. Those mountains, for all of their grandeur and their beauty, are a testimony of the violence of God's judgment in the days of Noah. And so as God melts the earth with a fervent heat... It will not just be a, a reforming of the topography as the heavens pass away. It will also be a passing away even of the remembrance of that judgment. The works thereof, the earth and the works thereof, will be burned up. And that's probably a portion of what we are seeing here as well. That as we talk about the first heaven and the first earth passing away, we certainly understand a physical element to that, a reforming of the earth as it stands. But the idea that there was no more sea, that might be something different. That might be something different. Now we've talked about this all throughout the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. We perk our ears when we read that because all throughout this, the book of this prophecy, we've seen the sea to be a metaphor for the Gentile or unbelieving world. The Antichrist was seen coming out of the sea. The four beasts of Daniel were seen coming out of the sea. Just a few verses ago, the Bible said the sea gave up her dead, right? The sea gave up her dead. The unbelieving world, the death and hell to the great white throne of judgment. Now, there's no reason here to consider what, uh, there is reason here, excuse me, to consider whether or not when John says there was no more sea, that means that the world that God recreates has no sea, which is possible, or whether he's saying that the unbelieving world will not be there anymore. In other words, that the earth will, and the heaven will pass away with the works thereof, as Peter presented it. So both of those are a possibility. What do we do with it? Well, we rest on what we do know. We feel free to speculate about what we don't know, and we do our best 
we move on from there. I leave it with you to to discern as you would how how you want to deal with that. Verses 2 and 3, the Bible says this, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, come down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. So accompanying this new heaven and this new earth is a new city, which John John calls here New Jerusalem, and he says that it descends from God out of heaven. Now, let's make one more quick clarification as we talk about this city descending out of heaven. This heaven that we would understand to have just been um, made, the new heaven, is not the abode of God. God did not remake his abode. Uh, when the Bible talks about heaven, we understand heaven from three different contexts, that, that the Jews understood there to be three heavens, and they would write about three different heavens. There was the heaven that is the sky, and that's where the birds would fly. And then there's the heaven that we would call outer space. That is where we find the stars and the planets. And then there is the heaven that is the abode of God. And uh, any one of these heavens in context could be the one that a Jewish writer or a Jewish speaker would be speaking of. That's why when Paul talks about him being carried into the third heaven, he's talking about the abode of God, the third heaven, the heaven that is above the heaven that is above the heaven. And so when the Bible says that God made a new, the new, new heavens and a new earth, he's not talking about remaking his own abode, but rather it's a remaking of those elements of the heavens that were created. In direct contrast or in direct um, comparison to the first heaven and the first earth, right? Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. He did not create His own abode there. He created the stars. He created the planets. He created the, the atmosphere. He created the sky. He created, of course, all of the other elements as well. So the created world is what is being remade, and, and the created world is what was made in, 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 to begin with. Genesis chapter 1, a first heaven and a first earth were made. Genesis chapters 9, 10, and 11, that world is fundamentally altered because of man's sin and God's judgment upon it. Revelation chapter 21, that world, that was made and then fundamentally altered by man's sin is now remade into perfection, into God's perfection once again. And it is that heaven that we're talking about. So as the new Jerusalem comes out of heaven, that would be the abode of God, where Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. As that place has been prepared, it comes out of heaven to the new creation. That is what is being spoken of here. This is where the new Jerusalem coming down to this new world that has been created. And I clarify just so that uh, we don't get things muddied here, that this new Jerusalem is coming into this new creation, but it's not, we're not really dealing with the abode of God as we're dealing with any of that here. And John says that this new Jerusalem is prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We'll talk more about that in just a little bit. Now, the point 
The object of what John seeing, is seeing here is found in verse 3. Uh, the object of New Jerusalem, the whole point uh, of John seeing this and the whole point of, of what we're seeing here with this new heaven and this new earth is found in verse 3. John hears a voice out of heaven saying, The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. So the emphasis of this new Jerusalem, we're going to talk about it, what it looks like, and we're going to talk about the streets of gold and the gates of pearl and all of that in just a moment. But the true emphasis of this new Jerusalem is that God is abiding with his people. The concept of the tabernacle naturally draws our minds back to the Old Testament, right? It draws our minds back to the book of, the, of Exodus where uh, God is laying down the prescription for the tabernacle. And then we have Leviticus and Numbers where we see that tabernacle functioning and all throughout the Old Testament where the tabernacle is functioning until the temple is built. And, and this tabernacle was the location, particularly in the book of Exodus, where God's presence dwelt among his people, where the fire of God would come upon it and the people could not come near it and Moses would go in and he would speak to God and these things would take place within the tabernacle. It was where was the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat that was over the Ark of the Covenant. It was where the presence of God abode. So for the past thousand years, as we get into Revelation chapter 21, Jesus has been ruling and reigning on this earth, but this earth has been scattered and populated. That there have been believers all around the earth and then unbelievers, right? As we talked about when we got to Revelation 20 and the great rebellion of verses 7, t- 7 through 15. And then we talked about Gog and Magog, right? And what that might be. So we, we see that, that believers were scattered around the earth. They had to make that trek every year to Jerusalem for the feast, right? They had, they had two feasts that they needed to come to every year. Uh, uh, excuse me, one feast that they had to come to. That would be the Feast of Tabernacles. Also observed would be the Feast of Passover every year, but they had to travel to him. Believers, unbelievers alike, had to travel to Jesus. Jesus was physically there in Jerusalem. People were scattered around the world, operating in this world, uh, a world that bears the marks of the curse, even if many elements of the curse no longer have their power in that world. But what we find here, what we find in Revelation 21 is that God is truly and finally gathering all his people together to, (coughs) excuse me, to his presence. A fundamentally different experience in this new Jerusalem. In this new Jerusalem, God is dwelling with his people. God is tabernacling with his people. The holiness of God is no, long, is no longer a, a point of separation with any of his people, for all of his people are holy and righteous, and they are with him. They are his people, and here's a wonderful phrase, and he is their God. So we see in verse 4, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things 
are passed away. We spoke a couple of weeks ago when we were expositing Revelation 20, verses 7 through 15, that perhaps a part of these tears uh, are on account of that great, the day of the great white throne of judgment and people seeing their loved ones uh, finally being uh, um, judged and cast in the lake of fire. But there's certainly something more to this verse than just that. We see a very strong co- uh, contrast here between uh, the tears being wiped away and the reason that those tears once existed. Because of death, sorrow, crying, pain. This is a blessed verse that reminds us that no matter how difficult things may get in this life, and this life is full of these things, isn't it? This life, for all of the ways that the Lord has blessed us, particularly in the United States, with material possessions and with medical advances and with um, even a, a lack of persecution as it relates to our faith, there's still trials. There's still difficulties. There's still pain. There's still illness. There's still hurts. There's still wrongs that are done to us. But there's coming a day when all of that will pass away. The former things are passed away. Scriptures tell us, and we'll see that in a moment, that God will even remove the remembrance of them. Any remembrance of death and of sorrow and crying and pain. New Jerusalem represents the end of all of those things. New Jerusalem represents the place where we abide with God. And the only word that, uh, that, that comes to my mind, or the best word that comes to my mind, to reflect what the New Jerusalem will be like is satisfaction. We'll be satisfied. Satisfaction. Absolute and utter satisfaction. Verses 5 and 6. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. So in verses 5 and 6, we come outside of the vision. John first hears a declaration. Behold, I make all things new. Excuse me. This declaration being from God, being from the one here called Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end. The voice then commands John to write these things because they are faithful, because they're true. They aren't just speculations. This is going to happen, folks. This is not just wishful thinking. This is not just John uh, uh, conjuring up in his mind something that he thought was going to happen. This was not just uh, John having a weird dream after eating too much pizza the night before. This is faithful and true. This is what is going to happen. These It's the end of all the prophecies. It's the end of all the hopes. These assurances that God has made. And how do we know that they're true? Because they're made on the basis of the character of the one who will bring them to pass. The one who is Alpha and Omega. The one who is beginning and end. He's the beginning. He's the end. He's seen it. He's there already. He's outside of time. He's beyond time. He says, I can guarantee you that this is going to happen. So God appeals directly to his own authority 
to assure us of the clarity and reliability of these promises. When he says here, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, this is the third of four times that we have read this phrase in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. We saw it two times in Revelation chapter 1, verses 8 and verses 11. We saw this phrase, I am Alpha and Omega, or some variation of it. We'll see it one more time later in the book. And the promise by the one who has created all things is this. Whoever is a thirst, whoever reads the prophecies of this book, whoever hears of the end that is to come, whoever hears of this judgment, who understands that this world will be judged, who sees that there is a time where all things will be made new, who, who recognizes that this newness is created by God and that I must be on his side to be a part of it. If you're thirsty, if you want it, you can have it. It's yours to take of freely. You have to do it his way. We'll talk about that as we get closer to the end. But if you want it, it's yours. Whoever is thirsty, let him come to the fountain of the water of life and drink of it freely. What is that water of life? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. We know that we cannot get to the water of life through our own efforts. There's no amount of being good. There's no amount of, uh, of, of self-effort. There's no amount of money. There's no amount of church attendance. There's no amount of external, externalities. No amount of, of um, helping other people. No baptism no communion, no externality that can get you to God save Jesus Christ alone. Recognizing that you are separated from God, that Jesus died on the cross to reconcile us to God, that on the cross, He, the Father, made Him, the Son, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And that if we acknowledge that Jesus was made our sin, for us. And we acknowledge not only that he was made sin, but that he died, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day in victory over sin, in victory over hell, in victory over the grave, recognizing that, that if we follow Christ, if we accept this gift, that because he lives, so too can we, that's drinking of the water of life. Look, if you've never done that today, if you've never come to that point in your life where you have partaken of the waters of life, where you have accepted that Jesus Christ alone can get you to heaven, that there's no amount of effort that can get you there, that you in yourself cannot please God. You can't do it. You are a sinner. All your righteousnesses, Isaiah says, are as filthy rags. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. There is none righteous, Paul would write. No, not one. And so the Bible says, to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace but of debt, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted to him for righteousness. If you've never done that today, that's what we're talking about here. That's the fountain of life. Those are the waters. And if you're thirsty, 
And if you've been looking and you haven't found satisfaction and you've been trying so hard and you're living under the guilt and the shame of how, how hard you've tried but how much you've failed, let go. Release it to Christ. Come to the waters of life because they're free. Drink of the waters of life. Partake of them freely. If you're thirsty, come. And as the scriptures tell us, you will find rest for your soul. We continue in verses 5 and 6. Excuse me, we already did verses 5 and 6. We continue in verses 7 and 8. To those of you that have done this, to those of you that have come to drink of the waters of life freely, you are now called an overcomer. And he says this in verse 7, He that overcometh shall inherit all things. I will be his God, and he shall be my son. What a great promise. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Those who drink of the waters of life, the overcomers, he says, if you are an overcomer, you will inherit all things. These things are for you, God says. You have not overcome because you've done anything. You've overcome. What is it? First John tells us that overcomes the world. Faith is the victory, First John says, that overcomes the world. And if you've exercised this faith, if you have overcome the world by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, all that overcome will take part in this new creation. All that overcome will be adopted into the family of God, and God will be your God, and you shall be His child. What a promise. But here's the thing, there are many who, are, who will not overcome. Not because they could not, because the scriptures already told us in verse 6 that anyone who is a thirst can come and drink of the waters of life freely. And yet there are many in this world who will not overcome the world. They will be cast down. They will stumble at the world. Those who have not the faith to yield the promises of this life for the promises of the life that is to come. Those who have not the faith to truly trust that there's nothing they can do to get themselves to heaven. And so they seek to earn it. And they seek to deserve it. Something which the Bible says we simply cannot do. And so they stumble at the stumbling stone that is grace. And they fail to overcome because they cannot get past their own necessity of, of doing those who draw back, as the scriptures say, if any man draw back, I will have no pleasure in him from the promises of God, who see the fountain of life and say, I see it, but I love this present world. The fountain of life is open freely, but many will not trust. Many will not trust that the promises of the fountain of life are of greater value than the promises of the world in which we live now. And this is the contrast that we find between verses 7 and 8. Contrasted with the overcomers are those who, far from living an identity as the child of God, are identified with the darkness of this world. Fear and unbelief and abominations and murders and whoremongering and sorcery and idolatry and lying and they will all have their place in the lake of fire, which we have found from chapter 20 is the second death. Their inheritance, the inheritance of the children of this world, 
is eternal eternity separated from God in a place of conscious torment known as the lake of fire. Now let us take a few extra moments here and be clear about what this is and what this is not saying. This is one of any number of New Testament passages which cites a list of sins and expresses that they which do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God or will, by contrast, inherit the lake of fire. We see in this list, of course, we've read this list twice already. Uh, We see any number of other things in lists in Romans and in 1 Corinthians that tell us about the the, Galatians that list the things that, that will cause a person not to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the natural problem with this is that no born-again believer is sinlessly perfect, is he? No one who exercises faith is born again into sinless perfection. And so we have a problem because as a believer, if you, as, as one who has accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, for those of you who have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've probably still told lies. One of the other lists in Corinthians adds disobedient to parents to that list of those who will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. I would wager to expect that some who would claim Christ in this room have probably disobeyed your parents on occasion. There are any number of believers who struggle with sin, idolatry, lack of faith. How do we reconcile these things? There is, in fact, nothing on this list that speaks of what unbelievers do to disqualify themselves from the kingdom of heaven that is outside the realm of a possibility for a believer. So what's the difference? What's the difference between one of these people, one of these fearful or unbelieving, one of these abominable, one of these murderers, one of these whoremongers, one of these sorcerers, one of these idolaters, one of these liars, and those who will enter into the kingdom of God, those who will enter into New Jerusalem? What's the difference? Well, the difference was found in verse 7, and that's why verse 7 is so important. This is why we don't take things out of context. This is why in order to read verse 8 properly, we need verse 7. And in order to read verse 7 properly, we need verse 6. And in order to read verse 6 properly, we need verse 5. And so forth. Because in verse 7, we saw this. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. The contrast being the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable are not those that overcome. Here's the thing. At the moment that a person, a man, a woman, a child partakes of the fountain of life, as we read about in verse 6, their identity is fundamentally changed. All throughout the book of the Revelation, we saw this concept where the Lord seals certain people. He puts his name on their forehead. They receive the name of the Most High, right? He has sealed them. They bear his name What happens when a person accepts Jesus Christ? And 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us this. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. What happens when a person accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior is that their identity is fundamentally changed. Whereas before, my identity was rooted in the sins that I committed. Whereas before, my identity was rooted in the fact that I was overcome by this world. The moment I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, I receive a new name. I receive the name of my God. May I put it this way? I'm branded with God's mark. 
so that when there is a separation of the sheep from the goats, you are either Christ's or you're not. You are either identified as Christ's or you are identified as what you were, a whoremonger, an idolater, a murderer. I may do those things. I may lie, but I am not identified in the heavens as a liar. I am identified as one who is in Christ. I have been placed into Christ. I am a child of God. My name is changed. I am no longer dealt with according to my sin. It's not that I'm innocent. None of us is innocent. But I am not guilty. Because Christ has taken my guilt. Christ has taken my shame. We know that not everyone is a child of God, right? John 1 verse 12 says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Even to, the, <clears throat> excuse me, even to them that believe on his name. Not everyone is a child of God. Everyone is a creation of God, but not everyone is a child of God. Those that are a child of God are those who have believed on his name. And the believer's identity as a child of God is in Christ. When God looks at me, he doesn't see my sin. He doesn't see my guilt. He sees the blood of Christ that has covered my sin and covered my guilt and covered my shame. So in this list, as with all of the others, the idea of being fearful and unbelieving and such, the idea is that these are men and women who have never sought for that new name. They have never had the fundamental change of identity that comes with faith in Christ. They are not a part of the adopted children of God. They have not had their name changed. Their identity is still wholly defined by their sin because they are not the children of God. What we find then is that the very essence of our hope, the very essence of our assurances in this life as it relates to how God sees us and sees our sin is not rooted in what we have done but in what Christ has done for us. And when we feel those, that hope and that assurance in this life, the blessedness of the ministry of the Holy Spirit who is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, we're just getting a taste of what is to come. We are made new in Christ at the moment of faith. We are spiritually fitted for the new existence which is to come. And only those who are spiritually fitted for that new existence by grace through faith alone will partake in this inheritance. And all those through who unbelief, no matter how well-meaning, no matter how earnest, if they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, they do not have that new name. Their identity has not been changed. They are still a part of the world. They are not overcomers. They are defined by their sin. They are the fearful. They are the unbelieving. They are the abominable. They are the murderers and the whoremongers and the sorcerers and the idolaters and their liars. And they will have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, before we move past this description, it is important to recognize that this is not the first time these words and these promises have been used in Scripture. We hearken back to Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 through 25, where we find uh, similar 
concepts as what we've read in verses 1 through 8. In Isaiah 65, Isaiah writes this, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered, nor come into mind. But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her nor the voice of crying. There shall be no more thence an infant of days nor an old man that hath not filled his days. For the child shall die an hundred years old, but the sinner being an hundred years old shall be accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit, they shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble. For they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord." And their offspring with them. And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the bullocks. Bullock, excuse me. And dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord. Now there are elements of this which seem quite millennial. uh, As opposed to being New Jerusalem-esque. We find that this passage begins with those promises of creating a new heaven and a new earth, that the former will not be remembered, that the former will not come to mind. Uh, we see the idea that there will be um, no more tears or crying, that there will be no, be no more sorrow. But then in verse 20, things seem to get a little muddied. Because it says that there will be no infants or old men. Well, that makes sense for an eternal state. But then it says that the, the child will die at 100 and that the sinner, will die, that, that, the sinner that dies at 100 will be accursed. Well, that gets a little bit interesting because in the eternal state we would understand that there are no more sinners and that there will be no more death. It sounds significantly more like the millennial kingdom there. So much so I had mentioned before that uh, in Revelation 20 that there was a passage of Scripture that I wanted to add to the kingdom part, but that I felt as though it didn't fit there. I felt it fit better into the eternal state. That's this passage here. We have this element that seems quite millennial. It talks about the lion and lying down with the bullock and the dust being the serpent's meat and these sorts of things. Talks about lives being extended. Sounds very millennial. And uh, in all honesty, let me just say this. I have no fully satisfactory answer to why it is that we have this promise of all things being made new while simultaneously having this element of, of lives seeming to just be extended, but there's still possibility of being death. But I do have a speculation, so let me give you that. We know that in prophecy, time is not essential, right? That the prophets saw elements as a whole, even that were separated by large spans of time. And that goes all the way back to the very beginning of our series a year ago when we talked about the prophetic elements of time in prophecy. So to speak of the day of the Lord... We don't just speak of the 70th week, but we speak of the millennium and and a, a large portion of time. In the same vein, it may not be a problem for us to see the elements of the eternal state and the elements of the millennial kingdom coexisting in a prophecy that there will be a time when God will make all things new and perhaps it is that God sees the beginning of that renewal with the millennial kingdom. 
with this time when people will plant and will be able to live in the houses that they build and be able to eat of the food that they plant and uh, where the lion can lie down with the lamb and when lives will be extended and it will seem as though one a child dies at 100 and that, that the sinner dying at 100 would be accursed. In other words, if someone does die at 100, that means that they must be doing something egregiously wrong because they wouldn't have died unless God was judging them. And we see all of those elements, and those uh, are, are perfectly in line with the millennial kingdom. And perhaps it is that God sees this as the beginning of the renewal, at the end of which is, of course, the rebellion, and then the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. And we know that that timetable is set because Revelation makes that timetable quite clear. So that's kind of where I, I feel like we can go with that as we look at this prophecy as a whole unit rather than as a timetable of events as we would regard Revelation. I'm not entirely satisfied with that answer, but it's the best one I have for you. If you've got something better, by all means, come and let me know and we can consider it more together. We come to chapter 21, verse 9, and I'm going to read a good portion of Scripture here. I'm going to read all the way to verse 21, and this describes New Jerusalem proper. The Bible says this, And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, and I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a wall, great and high, and had twelve gates, and a gate, and at the gate twelve angels, and the names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. On the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. He that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square, and the length uh, is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with a reed, twelve thousand furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof, an hundred and forty and four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the foundation of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third uh, chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth a uh, chrysoprasus, the eleventh a jacinth, uh, the twelfth an amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every se- several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. So we get here a technical description of the new Jerusalem which has descended from heaven. One of the angels that John saw pour out the seven vials of judgment upon the earth, which was quite some time now in our exposition, talks with John and shows him this city. And the description is that the city had very uh, high walls and it had 12 gates and on those 12 gates had the, the various 12 names of the tribes of Israel above each gate. 
they were dispersed on all four sides. So there were three gates per side, four sides of this city, which is a cube. The city also had 12 foundations, and each of the, one of those foundations um, had the name of one of the apostles of Jesus Christ. So we have the 12 tribes of Israel representing the law and the prophets, and then we have the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ representing uh, the New Testament, the church, the, the apostles uh, of the, the, the church. And then John says that this angel took a reed, which was a measuring stick, and that he measured the city. And the city was four square. It was, it was a cube, meaning that it was as tall as it was long as it was wide. And verse 16 tells us that the length and the breadth and the height of the city were all 12,000 stadia, which the King James translators converted to a furlong. A furlong would have been understandable in the days of, of the 1600s. A stadia would not have been. But a stadia, depending on which stadia measurement you took, was almost a one-to-one um, agreement with a furlong. So it's, it's, a, it's a good um, measurement there. Both of those, both a furlong and a stadia, is about 200 meters long, or about 220 yards, 660 or so feet. Naturally then, if we take 660 feet and we multiply it by 12,000, we get 7,920,000 feet, which is 1,500 miles. So this city is 1,500 miles long by 1,500 miles wide by 1,500 miles high. Now to give you a perspective on this, I printed out a map of the United States of America and I used a program that measures distance to measure 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles square. 1,500 miles square would take us from the western border of Minnesota, which is where I, I put our, our, our left end there, all the way across to New Hampshire, all the way down uh, south of Houston, a little bit into the Gulf of Mexico there, and all the way up north of Winnipeg. Now you see that there's a lot of ocean in the square that I drew there. Let me give you a little bit more perspective on this. It is calculated that the contiguous land mass of the United States, if you remove all water, if you remove all bodies of water, and you just calculate the contiguous land mass, so the 48 contiguous states, that it, it equals about 3 million square miles. This city, the footprint of this city, just the footprint, we're not talking about going up, just the footprint, 2.5 million square miles, okay? So just 5 million square miles less than the entire footprint of the contiguous United States. It's a really big city. If we take it to the Middle East, most of Turkey, half of Egypt, most of Saudi, half of Iran, all of Iraq and Syria and everything in between. We're talking about a huge tract of land here. But it's a city. It's a city with walls. And it's a city that's built as high as it is wide as it is long. It's a really, really big city. Verse says that the wall will be 144 cubits high. That's 216 feet. And then he gives... The, wall, the stones that the, the wall is made out of, the city being of pure gold, which pure gold is, if it's good, pure, thin gold, it's clear to the sight. It can be, it, it's, it's opaque, you can see through it. All of the different foundations made of precious stones. Twelve gates being made of a solid pearl with each gate. The takeaway 
of this is that the city will be stunningly beautiful. It will be large. It will be stunningly beautiful. We won't have to spread out. We will all have our needs met within this city where is our Lord. We will live with Him. Now, we continue in verses 22 through chapter 22, verse 6. And as I read this portion, uh, it shifts back to what this city will mean and will be for those within it. Verse 22, the Bible says this, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it, and the gates of it shall not be shut at all, by day, for there shall no night uh, be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations unto it. And there shall be in no, uh, in no wise, excuse me, and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh an abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb in the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there a tree of life which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations and there shall be no more curse but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it and his servants shall serve him and they shall see his face and his name shall be in their foreheads and there shall be no night there and they need no candle, neither light of the sun for the Lord God giveth them light and they shall reign forever and ever. And he said unto me, these sayings are faithful and true and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. So we finish reading in our text with the final attributes of this city, which rests upon this new earth and is surrounded by a new heaven. The city has no need of a sun, has no need of a moon, there is no night, and the Lamb and the glory of Almighty God enlighten this city. We will literally live in the light of the glory of the true and living God. The city... The gates, excuse me, will never need to be closed because there's nothing to harm. There is, there, there's no harm. To, there's no danger. There's no night. There's no danger. Nothing will harm. You don't need to close the gates to the city. The middle of the city bears the tree of life, which itself, the Bible says, bears a different fruit each month for 12 months and that the leaves of the tree of life will heal the nations. The nations which today and for all of history, recorded history, have torn each other apart, have fought and have warred and, ha and have sought for dominance one over another and the nations will be healed. There will be no more curse in this world. God's servants will serve Him God's people will see His face. God's people will have His name in their foreheads. And they shall reign forever and ever. And these sayings are faithful and true. And that leads us to the single thought that I'd like us to carry with us. 
Certainly, if you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, uh, the Holy Spirit is working on you, and there's a thought that, that will we'll carry with you from the gospel as we presented it. But for you who are believers, for we who have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, for you who bear the name of Christ, this is what we carry with our, us today. The inheritance of the saints is no less than heaven, no less than paradise, no less than God himself. The song says, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die. Would he bestow that sacred head for such a worm as I? The psalmist said, And I've lost it. Let me, let, let me tell you what the psalmist said. It was there, now it's gone. The psalmist said in Psalm chapter 8, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? When the psalmist looked up and saw the beauty of the creation, the power of the creation, the magnificence of the God who created it all, he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? And yet when we consider the smallness of man, we consider just as powerfully that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We consider just as powerfully that for we who are overcomers, your inheritance is the God of the universe. When Paul quotes Isaiah 64.4 in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, he says this, As it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. We can't fathom. Your mind literally cannot comprehend what God has prepared for you. Your mind cannot wrap it is it is not able to process the glory that will be revealed in us this day when we will rule and reign with him and reign forever and ever this day when we will see god face to face this day when we will bask in the glory of his presence where the light of the world will be jesus you 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 can't fathom Eye hath not seen, ear hath not heard. It has not even entered into your mind what God has prepared for you. So when Jesus promised in John 14, verses 2 and 3, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. That place that he has gone to prepare, that's what we just read about. Those mansions, the rooms in the house of his father, where we can dwell with him, where we will be one family. He's coming back to bring us to this place. When Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the, with the glory which shall be revealed in us. I mentioned that earlier. This was the glory that Paul is talking about. No less 
than the inheritance of God himself. We will be his people. God will be our God. So that we echo the words of the song. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. So as we sang in our first hymn this morning, I shall know him. I shall know him. And redeemed by his side, I shall stand. That's not hyperbole. It's not exaggeration. You will see him. You will know him. When history is finished, it is this that we have to look forward to. No more tears, because there will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more dangers, no more evil. The gates will stay open. No more wars, no more poverty. The nations will have been healed. We certainly didn't earn it. We certainly don't deserve it. But all who are athirst, all we who have received of the waters of life freely, it's just as much yours as it ever could be. This is what we have to look forward to. This is our inheritance. This is our hope. This is what drives us to do right. This is what compels us to serve the Lord with gladness. This is what compels us to suffer if we must needs suffer. And this we know in good times and in bad. This we know when the decisions of life need to be made. This we know when we're between the rock and the hard place that our inheritance is coming and it is God himself. We will see his face. He will be ours as we are his. That heaven is real, that it is wonderful, and that it is the inheritance of the saints. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.